0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Research pinpoints a particular risk for pregnant women and their babies.
1: Women who lived, you know, two-thirds to a mile away from where agricultural pesticides were being applied had about a 60% higher risk of their child developing an autism spectrum disorder.
0: A study of nearly a 1,000 children in California identifies which chemicals pose the greatest threat. Also, the Canadian government greenlights a tar sands pipeline to its west coast, but First Nations groups that have lived there for millennia object. They make a good living
2: from the sea. They fish. There's lots of uh, harvesting of seaweed and other marine flora and fauna that is not just part of their economic survival but their cultural survival and they have said no way
0: that and more this week on living on earth stick around
3: support for living on earth comes from united technologies innovating to make the world
0: a better more sustainable place to live from the jennifer and ted stanley studios in boston and pri this is living on earth i'm steve kerwood the contentious Keystone XL pipeline to carry tar sands oil from Alberta to the U.S. Gulf Coast is back in the news, with a decision by the Canadian government to approve a pipeline that would bypass the U.S. The proposed Northern Gateway and Bridge pipeline would pump diluted bitumen from Alberta across British Columbia to the country's west coast. If this pipeline moves forward, it would undercut the argument of opponents of Keystone XL who say blocking Keystone would protect the climate by keeping a lot of tar sands off the market. But coastal First Nations strongly oppose the plan, and British Columbia has imposed its own conditions. Sean McCarthy is an energy reporter for The Globe and Mail based in Ottawa and has been following the development of this proposal. Welcome to Living on Earth, Sean. Thanks very much, Steve. Now that the... uh, Canadian federal government has approved the Northern Gateway pipeline. What does it mean for the project? Where does it stand?
2: Well, it was a big hurdle for them, clearly, to get federal approval. Although, given the signals that this government has been sending, it was no surprise to anybody. They had a um, a review panel that held hearings last year, and and it recommended to the federal government approval, but it put two hundred and nine conditions on it. All of which really the company feels it can meet, but still a lot of work to be done. And then it faces huge political opposition in British Columbia, both from First Nations and non-Aboriginal local residents. And the provincial government is still not signed off on it. So I think it really is a political decision that the provinces face. And the argument is... You know, we're taking the risks here, both with pipeline breaks and spills and and with the tanker traffic, and where is the reward for the taxpayers of British Columbia.
0: Tell me about the Canadian system and what that means about British Columbia's opposition uh, here. How much power does BC have vis-a-vis the federal government of Canada in this situation?
2: Technically, not a lot. Technically, it is a federal decision to approve interprovincial pipelines, But the province does have a great amount of uh, moral suasion and political clout. The federal government is going to be facing an election within a year or so. And uh, huge opposition from the provincial government to this project would really hurt their
0: re-election chances. Give me some details of the opinions of those First Nations that have expressed opposition to the pipeline. What are they upset about? Well, there's two
2: groups. There are the communities that live along the pipeline route, which uh, goes from Edmonton in the middle of uh, central Alberta through the Rockies to the coast. I think that the more difficult constituency for the company are the communities on the coast. And they make a good living from the sea. They fish. There's lots of uh, harvesting of seaweed and other marine flora and fauna that is not just part of their economic survival, but their cultural survival. And they have said no way. They are not prepared to see a pipeline and and all the increase in tanker traffic that that will entail. Complicating this is that unlike in the rest of Canada and most of the United States, these First Nations have not signed treaties and have not ceded sovereignty from their land. And so they they actually say that they need to be not only consulted, but they need to give their okay before this pipeline gets built. And so the issues go way beyond the pipeline. And uh, good luck to Enbridge to try and cut this Gordian knot.
0: So what will B.C. and the First Nations do next?
2: So the First Nations have already begun launching legal challenges. In fact, they did even before the government made its decision. And First Nations have done pretty well by Canadian courts. Their rights have been enshrined and and protected and expanded, in some cases, by the courts. Then there is the idea of protests on the ground, and they're vowing that they will engage in direct action, protests, lying in front of bulldozers type of thing. There is fear of that things could get nastier if, if it goes ahead and there have been threats expressed in the community that things could get violent if the government does not respect the wishes of the communities. As for the province, the province isn't going to make any decisions for quite a while yet. And I don't think that they will take an active opposition to the pipeline uh, they 've just made it very clear, and the Minister said, "Our conditions have not been met, and the premier has said this, our conditions have not been met, and until they are, we will not provide support or or uh, encouragement to the pipeline
0: Now, how is Prime Minister Stephen Harper and his administration responding to this opposition?
2: Well, I think it's important to note for a starter that even in British Columbia, you know, it's it's not like an 80 or 90% opposition. Many people are are not opposed or if they are opposed, it's not a top of mind issue that would drive their decision in the ballot box. The government argues that the oil sands in Alberta are a hugely important national asset, not just for Alberta, but for the country. Canada's oil has only been exported to the United States in our long history of of an oil industry here, which goes back to just after the Second World War. And uh, the U.S. now, we've seen the Obama administration not wanting to approve the Keystone XL pipeline. We've seen a huge increase in production in the U.S., and we've seen U.S. demand flatten. So if you're selling oil, the U.S. is not a great market to be uh, your sole avenue for, for sales. So it's vital, in, according to the government, to expand the access to Asian markets, which are eager for that new supply and will pay world prices instead of the discounted prices that producers are getting in the U.S. market.
0: To what extent is Northern Gateway project really just a bargaining chip to try to get the Keystone XL pipeline done through the United States, which I gather the folks who are doing the tar sands development would rather see. The industry and the government believe that Canada
2: needs a pipeline to the West Coast to access Asia. And right now, the oil sands is producing 2 million barrels a day. The projections are for 5 million barrels a day in 15 years or so. And if they're going to get that kind of growth, Keystone XL alone is not enough. They want at least two, if not three more pipelines. So it's not an either or in the minds of the Canadian government or the industry. That being said, that Keystone pipeline, it's a key market and the Canadians would love to get it. They are hopeful, I think, that the idea that Canada has options will put additional pressure on the U.S. to approve
0: Keystone. Sean McCarthy is a global energy reporter for The Globe and Mail in Ottawa, Canada. Thanks so much, Sean, for taking the time today. You're welcome. Thanks very much. Concerns about global warming aside, one reason the U.S. is not so eager to embrace the Keystone XL pipeline is the growth of its own energy production, as Sean McCarthy mentioned. Fracking is mostly driving the oil and gas boom in America, but that has its own environmental problems, including the natural radioactivity of the rocks that cover the Marcellus Shale in the eastern U.S. And the radioactive debris, or drill cuttings, left behind by fracking can contaminate water unless properly treated. And while New York State has a moratorium on fracking, it does accept plenty of radioactive drilling waste from nearby Pennsylvania. And that has touched off an intense debate. Matt Richman reports for WSKG in the Allegheny Front and has the story.
4: All rocks have some radiation in them, but the Marcellus Shale is an unusually radioactive underground formation. A recent study found it's three times higher than in other rock layers. The element of greatest concern is radium. And that's what Larry Schilling has to watch out for.
2: The stuff with the plastic there, that is the drill cuttings.
4: Schilling is vice president of Casella Waste Systems. The company operates the Chemung County Landfill, where piles of drill cuttings trucked in from Marcella Shale Wells in nearby Pennsylvania are scattered around the yard. The cuttings look like heaps of wet black sand wrapped in a black plastic liner. They are actually a mixture of rock cut through the gas-rich Marcellus shale, fluids, called drilling mud, used to help bore the well, and liquids found deep underground. All this material comes up before a well is fracked. It doesn't include fracking chemicals. Schilling sits in a pickup truck at the landfill, watching trucks loaded with piles of dirt crawl by. They're not allowed to take cuttings that are too radioactive. See this thing that says Ludlum? Schilling points out a pair of white tubes, each about five feet tall, sitting on posts at the entrance to the landfill. So they pull up, they stop, and then as they drive onto the scales, it registers what
2: uh, radioactivity might be in it.
4: Schilling says they've never had a load of cuttings that exceeded acceptable levels of radiation enter the site. States in and around the fracking boom are working through what to do about all this naturally radioactive waste from drilling. Pennsylvania is conducting a study of radiation in the Marcellus Shale. West Virginia passed a law segregating drill cuttings from other parts of landfills. Casello wants New York state regulators to let the company take even more drill cuttings from Pennsylvania. But not everyone is convinced this landfill is taking sufficient precautions. Gary Abraham is an environmental lawyer in western New York working to block Casella from expanding its landfills. Abraham says there's so much radiation in the deep shale rocks that it must inevitably be getting into landfills. He points to radioactivity readings taken by New York state regulators of the salty water found in the Marcellus Shale. This water, which comes up during and after fracking, is called brine. The
2: radioactivity of the brine is as high as 15,000 picocuries per liter. The background radiation at the surface of the Earth in New York is about one picocurie per
4: liter. Schilling says while brine can be more radioactive, the cuttings are benign. In fact, says Schilling, testing they commissioned on the Marcellus showed very little radiation in the cuttings.
2: The uh, the highest reading we got from any of the, those four samples was 4.3 <laughs> picocuries per gram. Still under the cleanup standard that EPA set for cleaning up sites.
4: The difference? One is looking at the brine associated with the Marcellus shale and raising the red flag. The other is just focused on the rock and giving the green light. The natural radiation in the Marcellus, particularly in the brine that comes out of it during and after fracking, is well established. Avner Vengosh is a geochemist at Duke University. He found radium in a Pennsylvania stream near a plant that processed fracking wastewater at 200 times background level. Vengosh says there's a risk that once the radium locked deep underground gets into streams and rivers, it will make its way into fish and eventually into people.
2: Radium is very similar to calcium, and as a result, it would um, accumulate in the bone and start radiation, which would lead to um, bone cancer.
4: The particular form of radium found in the shale, radium-226, has a half-life of more than 5,000 years. So basically, once it gets into the environment, it's there for good. Since contaminants started showing up in streams, Pennsylvania has tightened restrictions on the disposal of wastewater. But the treatment of solid waste at places like the Shimon County Landfill in New York concerns Van Gogh.
2: Every contaminant that is being disposed into landfill, the solids... Are subject to uh, numerous attack of acid and, and different chemicals, uh, different solutions within the landfill, and they creating what we call leachates.
4: Leachate. It's basically garbage tea. Anything that's in the landfill, like radium, can get into it. What happens to the leachate? It comes here. We are at the Schmunk County Sewer District on Lake Street in Elmira. And this is a 12 million gallon
5: per day trickling filter plant.
4: The plant handles about 6 million gallons of wastewater a day. The landfill sends up to 30,000 gallons a day for treatment. Dan McGovern is the plant's chief operator. McGovern says they're only certified to do basic tests at their on-site lab. They can check for solids, pH levels, dissolved oxygen, and salts. But do they test for radium? McGovern says no. That would have to be something that they would have to uh, They would have to actually send it out to a a very sophisticated lab to to test that, yes. The treatment plant tests the water when it comes in and when it goes out, into the Chemung River, but never for radiation. Casella does a quarterly radiation test of its leachate. Results showed low levels of radium-226, but with each testing, there was a small increase. In New York, Marcellus shale drill cuttings are exempted from the regulations governing low-level radioactive waste. If they weren't, landfills couldn't take them, and leachate would have to go to specialized treatment plants that can handle hazardous waste.
0: Matt Richmond reports for WSKG and the Allegheny front. Coming up, growing evidence of the dangers of ubiquitous pesticides for people and pollinators. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Time now to call up Peter Dykstra, our guide to the surprising world beyond the headlines. He's the publisher of dailyclimate.org and environmental health news. That's EHN.org. And he's on the line from Conyers, Georgia. Hi there, Peter. What's going on?
6: Hi, Steve. The 4th of July is coming upon us, and of course, in in one of the most curious ceremonies honoring American independence, some brave men and women will once again gather on the beaches of Coney Island and compete for the Gluttony Championship, aiming for the record of 69 hot dogs and buns consumed in 10 minutes. Uh, Yeah, we've made one of the seven deadly sins into a competitive sport, but that's not why I bring this up. I mention it because sodium nitrite, the vaunted preservative for hot dogs and bacon and other processed meats, is in the news.
0: Tell us about this newfound fame for sodium nitrite.
6: Some researchers have found that sodium nitrite is unusually toxic in hogs. So the Agriculture Department is testing ways to deploy sodium nitrite to control the estimated 5 million feral hogs in the U.S. Uh, These wild animals uh, cause an estimated billion and a half dollars in damage to crops, gardens, and lawns every year.
0: Wait, so sodium nitrite can kill hogs, but it saves the bacon?
6: Yeah, and and bear in mind that studies have shown this uh, particular additive is not particularly good for humans either.
0: So what's next for today?
6: Well, it's one thing to fail to listen to warnings before an environmental disaster, but it's another thing entirely to fail to listen to warnings for nearly three decades. The cause of the huge coal ash spill that polluted the Dan River in Virginia and North Carolina last February got its own red flag starting in 1986, 28 years ago. There were engineering reports on the drainage pipe at the center of the spill. Those reports came to the surface during an ongoing federal grand jury investigation into possible criminal charges against uh, Duke Energy and the operators of the plant. Engineers did subsequent investigations and apparently warned Duke Energy at least four more times, most recently in 2006, that this might be a problem.
0: And there are a lot of at-risk coal ash sites out there now, right?
6: Right. Uh, EPA has a list of over 600 coal ash impoundments. Forty-five of them are identified as high hazard because of how toxic the coal ash is. Uh, And there's a separate EPA list with 53 coal ash sites where lagoons are contained by what they consider to be high hazard dams.
0: You can see if there's a risky coal ash site near your home and link to all these stories at LOE.org. Hey, Peter, what do you have this week from the Annals of History?
6: Let's set the clock back to the Roaring Twenties. Back then, oil caused powerful men to misbehave. Ninety years ago this week, 1924, Albert Fall, a former U.S. Interior Secretary, was indicted for bribery in the biggest political scandal of the decade, what became known as the Teapot Dome Scandal. Mr. Fall took the fall because he took kickbacks when he assigned oil leases at discount prices to the cronies of President Warren G. Harding. Fall was convicted. He was sentenced to a year in prison for handing out the leases near Teapot Dome, uh, an oil reserve in Wyoming. The oil scandal also eventually took down Attorney General Harry Daugherty. But it didn't reach the president, Harding, who may have avoided prosecution by dying in office.
0: So I want to get this straight. There was a time in this country when big oil could just throw money around, turn politicians' heads and just simply get their way? You're kidding, right? Uh,
6: Yeah. Yeah, I thought so.
0: Peter Dykstra is publisher of Environmental Health News, ehn.org, and the thedailyclimate.org. Thanks for taking the time, Peter. You bet, Steve. We'll talk to you soon. A new paper in Environmental Health Perspectives is sounding a note of warning for pregnant women. The research confirms earlier and smaller studies that also found that living close to areas where agricultural pesticides are used is associated with a spike in the risk of their unborn children having developmental delays and autism spectrum disorders. Neurodevelopmental disorder scientists at the UC Davis Mind Institute recruited 970 children from its ongoing studies of autism for this groundbreaking research. Irva Hertz-Picciotto is professor of epidemiology at the Institute and a senior author of the paper and joins us now. Welcome to Living
1: on Earth. Thank you for having me.
0: So tell me, just how risky is it for a pregnant woman to live near a place where pesticides are being sprayed agriculturally?
1: So in our study, women who lived, you know, two-thirds to a mile away from where agricultural pesticides were being applied had about a 60% higher risk of their child developing an autism spectrum disorder. So the background risk, you know, based on the latest figures from the Centers for Disease Control, is about 1 in 68. So, you know, if it's 60% higher, it may be 1 in 40-something, which certainly is reason to be concerned.
0: And 60% is the average. In certain cases, the risk is much higher, you found.
1: So there are, of course, multiple types of pesticides that are used in agriculture, depending on the crops. One of them is called organophosphates. One of the most widely used individual pesticides in that class is chlorpyrifos. And that one actually was associated with a particularly high risk um, for a third trimester and second trimester use of that product.
0: Do you say high risk, what do you mean?
1: Between two and threefold higher. That class of pesticides is no longer permitted for use in household products. So, up until about 2000, that was actually one of the main ingredients in our sprays that we use for cockroaches and ants and and those sorts of pests around the home. They continue to be used for commercial uses, including in agriculture.
0: What are the other chemicals that you study?
1: pyrethroids, which are used not only in agriculture but also in the household products, they've replaced the organophosphates, they conferred about an 80% higher risk for women and their child. These are a product that is labeled usually as natural, and that's because the original pyrethrin came from the chrysanthemum plant. However, the pyrethroids have been synthesized to be more toxic and to last longer, Some of them can last, uh, you know, maybe a few weeks, others longer than a year.
0: And the other chemical group?
1: The carbamates, um, they're somewhat similar in chemical structure to the organophosphates. And they were not associated with a higher risk of autism spectrum disorder, but they were associated with higher risk for other types of developmental delay, such as intellectual disability or sometimes called cognitive impairment.
0: Now, tell to me about what you did for this study. Um, how did you uh, get a clear understanding of how they've been exposed to these chemicals?
1: Actually, this is part of the CHARGE study, which stands for Childhood Autism Risk from Genes in the Environment. We actually find out about these children through California's Department of Developmental Services. And then we conduct interviews with the family. One of the things we collect is their residential history This paper was taking the addresses that they reported and linking them to a database that California maintains where commercial pesticide applicators are required to report all of the jobs where they have applied pesticides and where they applied them. And then the where is what we then link. So we have the addresses of the woman, we have the applications of the pesticides and the dates, we have the dates of her pregnancy, and put that together to determine um, was she living in close proximity or not.
0: Now, what do you suppose is the mechanism of how these chemicals work to increase the risk of of a child developing an autism spectrum disorder? How do you go from, say, killing insects to changing someone's mental abilities?
1: You know, as you mentioned, they're designed to kill, (laughs) kill insects. So unlike a lot of other chemicals that we encounter, they are really designed to shut down a central nervous system, granted, of the insect. The mechanisms by which nerves in um, you know, virtually all living beings operate involves you know, electrical impulses going across neurons through what's called the synapse. Many pesticides, in fact, operate by disrupting that chemical jump. So that you know, that's one mechanism that pesticides can operate by. Uh, so there are a lot of functions in that early development that can be disrupted.
0: What surprises did you have doing this?
1: Mm, surprises. We thought we would see that the closer they lived, the stronger the effect. And that was sometimes true and sometimes not true. But the weakness in, in this, of course, is which way was the wind blowing when the applications were being made? Was the women at home? Were the windows open? Uh, Was she at work that day? How much is actually getting into her body? So a lot of unknowns, and this is an approximate indicator of, you know, potential for exposure. It's not an actual measurement. We also need to look at other sources of pesticide exposure. So living near agricultural fields is one. Home applications would be another. And then the third would be residues on food that was uh, sprayed, you know, while it was out in the fields and may still be there when it gets into your home.
0: Erba hertz is a professor of epidemiology at the UC Davis Mind Institute. Thank you so much for taking the time today.
1: Sure. Thank you very much for having me, Steve.
0: Well pesticide exposure isn't just a problem for humans. Many scientists think that their widespread use could be contributing to the collapse of honeybee populations around the globe. Professor Alex Liu of the Harvard School of Public Health recently published a paper in the Bulletin of Insectology probing the connection between pesticides called neonicotinoids and the honeybee die-off. He noticed that the first signs of colony collapse disorder corresponded perfectly with the rise in 2005 of these new pesticides, the neonicotinoids. They can save money for farmers as there's no need to spray. Instead, the chemicals can be used to coat seeds or added to irrigation water, making these insecticides systemic in plants and residual
7: in plant products. The link is high fructose corn syrup. Those corn that come off on the GMO program was to make high-fructose corn syrup. And those pesticide residue show up in high-fructose corn syrup that those beekeepers use to feed their hive, and that lead to the CCD. The colony collapse the colony disorder. Colony collapse disorder, yes. So we use this observation in the field to formulate our hypothesis, and then we design a scientific study to see whether we can replicate CCD in our experimental site. So what you did was is that you took sugar water, and in some cases, you added neonicotinoid to that, and in others, you didn't. That's correct. And what did you find? So we found out that for those hives that we didn't give them pesticides, neonicotinoid, they survive. They survive over the winter. One hive actually died, but die inconsistent to disease like mite or noceva parasite. Whereas in our first year study, 15 out of 16 colonies that we treat them with neonicotinoid, they die. And the post-mortem observations are inconsistent to the CCD, which is the abundance of the hive by those adult bees, which they are not supposed to be. So what happens? The bees just leave the hive in the middle of the winter? So, This is a very interesting scientific question because what we have right now in terms of CCD is that pesticides fundamentally change their neurological behavior or their cognition. As I mentioned, by the time this winter arrives, bees don't go outside. The cold temperature actually kill the bee right away. So they form a cluster inside a hive. So each other kind of survive because the heat generation through each individual bees. Somehow, those neonicotinoids change this aspect of the biology of honeybees. So by the time the beekeeper found out their hive is empty, it's too late. So it changed the behavior of the Exactly. Bees. Exactly. And that's at least the, the, the uh, hypothesis so far. Now, um,
0: Professor Liu, you mentioned that you came to the Harvard School of Public Health to study human health and exposure to pesticides. What does this research about neonicotinoids tell us about
7: possible risks to humans from this? Well, I think that direct impact to human health is the shortage of the food if we keep losing those bees. Uh, one-third of the agricultural production rely on honey bee pollination and those food are the food that we all like and very important to our health because of nutrition. So not having enough bee to pollinate definitely will going to affect the price of the food and then eventually will harm people's health. The second fact to human health which is unknown at this moment is that what would be the impact of those residue in the environment in a longer period of time that I look at neonicotinoid, is almost identical to DDT that we have in the 60s and 70s. So we now know that 20, 30 years later, DDT affects reproductive system. And whether neonicotinoid have other health effects to human beings, we don't know yet because this issue is still relatively new. But I'm sure that down the road, we will find out exactly how human health can be impacted by a little bit of residue in the environment, in the water, in the food, and so on.
0: So... President Obama recently announced that he's going to start a pollinator task force, take a whole bunch of federal agencies and departments to come together to deal with the pollinator crisis. What's your understanding of what the task force would do?
7: Well, I think one thing, they're going to set up habitat or gardens in the Midwest states. So the bee can pollinate and get their food from those gardens or habitats so they can survive. Um, the other aspect of the initiative is to, as you said, to gather experts uh, across the agencies to have an independent review within the next six months to see whether neonicotinoid as a group does cause the CCDs. But I have to say, though, the initiative might be ill-advised. Why? Because if you think about it, why you only set up those habitats in the Midwest state? Why not in California? Why not in Florida? So obviously something wrong with the Midwest states. So what do we grow in those Midwest states? Nothing but the GMOs. So obviously the government knew that the relationship between the GMO and the use of neonicotinoid in those GMOs has something to do with the colony collapse disorder. But they don't want to say that. Instead, they say we're going to set up those gardens and have that in the Midwest state. They are not looking at the fundamental question that really caused the CCD. So what do we need to do then to save bees? Well, we need to take this pesticide away from where the bee goes. Bee does not know which plant, which flower has been treated with neonicotinoid. They go after nectar. They go after pollen. So if neonicotinoid has been used in those areas, then those bees will be exposed. So the only way to prevent bee to be exposed to those pesticides is not to use those pesticides. Throughout my career, I never called for a ban of any pesticides because I do value pesticides in public health, for example. But for neonicotinoid, I think we are looking at DDT right now. I mean, the best way to deal with DDT is not to use DDT. I think neonicotinoid fall into the same category.
0: Alex Liu is an associate professor of exposure biology at the Harvard School of Public Health. Thanks for coming by today. Thank you, Steve. Coming up, some good news about those most regal of butterflies, the monarchs. That's Ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Funding for Living on Earth comes
3: from United Technologies, a provider to the aerospace and building systems industries worldwide. UTC Building and Industrial Systems provides building technologies and supplies, container refrigeration systems that transport and preserve food, and medicine with brands such as Otis, Carrier, Chubb, Edwards, and Kida. This is PRI, Public Radio International.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Back in the winter, we reported dire news about the state of those iconic and beloved butterflies, monarchs. Researchers noted record low numbers of monarchs overwintering in the Mexican mountains of Michoacan, a decline blamed variously on deforestation south of the border, global warming, bad weather, GMO crops, and the decline of milkweed, which monarch caterpillars feed on. Well, having sounded the alarm, we thought we should check in to find out how they're doing now it's summertime. So we called up an expert, Anurag Agrawal, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell University, who says, so far,
5: so good. So our first numbers uh, for how the monarchs are doing this year come from Texas. Those tens of millions of monarchs that were overwintering in Mexico in the mountains of Michoacan fly to Texas and uh, lay eggs there. And they have then a complete generation there. They drop their eggs. Caterpillars develop on the Texas milkweeds. And those adults are then pass away. They die. That first generation in Texas did well, and they've moved north. They're now in the upper Midwest. We've seen them right here in Ithaca flying through. So um, really only time will tell. As you know, the monarchs have uh, three to four generations every year. And what that means is the summertime is their opportunity for uh, the population to rebuild back up. I have to say that I've noticed in my own
0: backyard in New Hampshire, some monarchs just this past weekend didn't see any last year. Of course, that's just anecdotal. But uh, I'm likely to see more, do you think?
5: I do. I had the same experience that you did last summer was the lowest number of butterflies I'd seen in the summertime in my 10 years in Ithaca. And uh, like I said, I've already seen them again this year. So, you know, to me, there's kind of bad news and good news. You know, the, the bad news is the last three years were the lowest on record uh, in terms of number of monarchs at the overwintering grounds, you know, a single low year is not necessarily a huge problem. But when there are three dramatically low and the lowest years on record, that's when people begin to worry about extinction. But uh, the good news is that there's tremendous reproductive potential in a monarch butterfly. A female has about a thousand eggs in it. And so in the field, She might deposit, let's say, four to 500 of those. Quite remarkably, you know, if all 500 were to survive, one female and one male could repopulate the tens of millions of butterflies we kind of expect to see each year. What we hope to see is that their populations build over the summer and we'll really know what the kind of state of the population is at the time of the southern migration.
0: Now, President uh, Barack Obama just issued a formal presidential memorandum, which requires federal uh, departments and authorities to put their heads together to come up with a game plan to protect pollinators. And in that order, he specifically mentioned the monarch butterfly. What do you make of that?
5: Yeah, I think it was a landmark memorandum. I'm really excited uh, that insects, both bees as well as butterflies, have made it on to the president's agenda. You know, really, the memorandum compels, as I read it, 14 federal agencies. It's not just the Secretary of Agriculture and the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, but it compels, you know, the Department of Transportation, of defense, of education, of energy to all work together to come up with this strategy for maintaining bee and pollinator health. The fact that monarchs are lumped in there is, you know, I think, is uh, a little bit amusing, but also really important. Uh, the amusing part is that what we know from the biology of milkweeds, which are the host plant of the monarch butterfly, as well as their general biology, is, in fact, they are not particularly good pollinators. They're doing very little of the pollination of milkweed or other plants. So what you're saying is
0: that while the science of this may be wrong to cite the monarch as a pollinator... The fact that the president is bothering to mention the butterfly is good news. Absolutely good news. So why is it important to protect the monarch
5: butterfly? We all love looking at them. But why all the attention, in your view? In my view, the attention to the monarch, I think, comes from two sources. One, uh, you know, millions of people all over the continent are appreciating their natural beauty, the biology of this spectacular organism – The flip side is because it travels across three nations from the Canada through the U.S. to Mexico, uh, the environmental health of our continent is in a way reflected in that annual cycle of the monarch. If this butterfly can't complete its life cycle, then we're doing something wrong as a continent because we aren't providing a sustainable habitat where the butterfly can, uh, can do its annual migration.
0: Anurag Agrawal is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell University. Thanks for taking the time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. News about the Monarchs reminded us of another interview from a couple of winters ago with award-winning author Barbara Kingsolver about her latest novel, Flight Behavior. It also features the Monarchs and their epic migration and starts off with the main character, Della heading up the mountain behind her Tennessee sheep farm, planning to leave the farm, her kids, and her comatose marriage.
8: She's marching up this mountain to, um, she's at the end of her rope. She doesn't really want to wreck her life, but she has to wreck her life. She's stopped along the way by the sight of what looks to her like a valley of trees on fire. These trees are all glowing orange. And she becomes convinced that it's a miracle. It's like her burning bush. And she turns around and runs back down the hill, picks up her kids and decides to straighten out her life. Well, soon enough, she finds it's not a miracle. It's a freakish biological event caused most likely by climate change. It's an immense congregation of monarch butterflies. Normally, these butterflies congregate, aggregate for the winter in uh, the mountains, high mountains of central Mexico. In this case, I imagined a circumstance in which their migratory system is so disrupted that they would shift their aggregation to very similar mountains in southern Appalachia. What would happen if this happened is that it would be touch and go because this is a much colder winter in southern Appalachia, and most likely in the course of this winter, the whole species is going to freeze to death. So,
0: of course, you, Barbara Kingsolver, you train deeply in science.
8: I have a Bachelor of Science, a Master's in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and actually I was in a Ph.D. program. I, got, I did everything but finish the dissertation. I defected at the last minute when I sort of realized that this dissertation, if I finished it, would reach probably and impress maybe 11 or 12 people in the world. And I had this idea it could shoot for an even bigger audience than that.
0: In this novel, uh, Flight Behavior, you spend a lot of time on science. It it may be a fiction that the monarchs are taking up residence, uh, winter residency in in Tennessee. But uh, after that, all the science that you have in there, to my read, is is accurate. Um, Thank you. Tell me more, actually, about the science of these monarch butterflies and why you use this as a teaching tool for Della Robbia and the people around her.
8: I just had this vision of the monarchs roosting in an Appalachian hollow. That's sort of the magic. Writing a novel is 99% labor and 1% magic. But I recognized immediately it would be a really great prime mover for a novel because there is so much truth. Already there are plenty of well-documented circumstances in which animals that are less adaptable than we are, are getting shifted in ways that are both incongruous and fatal to them. At one point, Della Robbia in this novel is trying to explain what she has learned, because she comes to be uh, actually in the employ as a sort of low-level lab tech for the scientist that comes in to study this. So she's learning all this stuff, and she's trying to translate it into terms that her friends and her poor husband- Cobb, who's kind of a dim bulb. He's really sweet, but not very bright. She's trying to explain it. And she says, it's like they're directed by cues that they can't change. They have to follow the signs. So she says, it's like if you followed the signs to the grocery store every week and you went to the food king, and then one week you followed the same signs exactly the same way and you ended up at the auto parts store, what would you eat?
0: The science around these monarch butterflies is really fascinating that they make these generational migrations, for instance. Can you tell us Mm -hmm. more about that?
8: It's something to knock your socks off. The monarch that is in your yard in the fall, maybe in Connecticut or Maine or Minnesota, that monarch that is about to turn around and head for Mexico has never been in Mexico. Its parents were never in Mexico How does a brain the size of a pinhead tell them how to get someplace they've never been year after year, century after century? They've been doing this for thousands of years and now, suddenly, it is getting disrupted. Not precisely as I've portrayed it in this novel, but that is a potentially real scenario. I actually tracked down, I did a lot of research on monarchs, obviously, and I tracked down the world's foremost experts, notably Dr. Lincoln Brower. And I laid this scenario on him, and I was afraid he would laugh me out of the laboratory. But no, he said. I said, is this at least plausible? And he said, yes, it is. And let's talk about why and how that could be true.
0: And is that when you walked out of his lab feeling really sad?
8: Yes and no. I knew when I entered this novel how serious this is, how far along this scary road we have gone. There's a moment in the novel when Ovid is trying to explain to the reporter how bad things are. He says, we are perched at the top of Niagara Falls, We can't just take a leisurely swim back upstream when we get over our denial. Does this strike you, he asks, as a good time to be debating the existence of the falls? I know where we are. I've been following this a long time. I'm a scientist. You know, I believe science. I guess it makes me feel a little better to know I'm talking about it. I'm not in denial. I'm doing the best I can to encourage a conversation— and maybe illuminate some of the reasons why we're failing to converse. That's the best I could hope for.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your protagonist here, Della Robbia. She got into this marriage that she was going to throw away because, uh, well, it was a shotgun wedding, we we would say. Right. right?
8: Whatever big ideas she might have had about her life in high school, uh, she gave up when she got pregnant and uh, married at 17. So she's very constrained by her circumstances. So this event brings Della for the first time in contact with journalists from the outside world, with tourists, with scientists, and and really with science, with a scientific way of evaluating what she sees.
0: Now, there's a great passage in your book that I think really exemplifies the uh, different camps that people fall into when it comes to believing in climate change. It starts on page uh, 320. Della Robbia is talking to uh, to Ovid, the butterfly scientist. Could you read that for us, please?
8: Sure. He says, science doesn't tell us what we should do. It only tells us what is. And Della Robbia responds, that must be why people don't like it. Ovid seems startled. They don't like science? I'm sorry, she says. I'm probably speaking out of turn here. You've explained to me how big this is, the climate thing. That it's taking out stuff we're counting on, but other people say just forget it. My husband, guys on the radio, they say it's not proven. Ovid says, what we're discussing is clear and present, Delarobia. Scientists agree on that. These men on the radio, I assume, are non-scientists. Why would people buy snake oil when they want medicine? That's what I'm trying to tell you. You guys aren't popular. Maybe your medicine's too bitter, or you're not selling to us. Maybe you're writing us off, thinking we won't get it. Ovid nodded slowly. We were not always unpopular, scientists. Fifteen years ago, people knew about global warming, at least in a general way. You know, he says, in surveys, they would all answer, yes, it exists. It's a problem. Conservatives or liberals, exactly the same. Now there is a divide. Well, yeah, Delarobia says, people sort themselves out. Like kids in a family, you know? They have to stake out their different territories. The teacher's pet or the rascal. I'd say the teams get picked and then the beliefs get handed around. Team camo, we get the right to bear arms and John Deere and the canning jars and tough love and taking care of our own. The other side wears, I don't know what, something expensive. They get recycling and population control and lattes and as many second chances as anybody wants. Dr. Byron looked stupefied.
0: Della Robbia as a character I find just fascinating. People who would like to sell a lot of books in America typically don't write about really poor people. And Della Robbia is a, pretty close to the bottom. I mean, she's Uh, struggling uh, to even buy her kids uh, presents for Christmas in a dollar store.
8: You're right. Poverty is an important part of the grounding of this novel. And this is the culture I wanted to describe and then move you into a conversation with yourself about environmentalism. And I think the environmental movement in this country and in the world may often be failing to take into account class
0: Indeed, because you have this scene a bit later, she's with an activist who's come to her her farm, he's handing out leaflets and he's trying to get people to sign a pledge to reduce their carbon footprint, but it turns out she's doing just about everything that's on her list.
8: It's completely irrelevant to her life. You know, she, he goes down this checklist. It starts with, you know, take your own silverware when you dine out. And she says, I haven't been to a restaurant in over two years. And that was, you know, restaurant being the Dairy Queen or something. He says, OK, well, eat less red meat. And she sort of wishes she could eat red meat. And he says, turn down the thermostat. And she's trying to keep the electricity on in her house. It's been shot off several times already in the, during this novel because she couldn't pay the bills. This is a moment when she is beginning to get that as, as humans on the earth, we've passed some kind of point where we're, we're going to have to start to rein ourselves in, rein in our consumption. And she's seeing that she never got there in the first place. This is what a lot of people on planet Earth are being asked to do. rein themselves in when they never quite got there in the first place.
0: Well, I guess we don't want to give away the ending here. Um, We
8: don't.
0: So instead, I I think I need to ask you, Barbara Kingsolver, what do you do next? Uh, Can we expect more works on the environment? Climate change?
8: I think you can. I think you can expect that I will always write about things that seem to matter to me and to matter to my readers because a novel is an audacious act. I'm asking you, okay, set aside your life for, let's say, eight or ten hours and listen to me. I come from a culture of modesty. You know, we Southerners don't say sit down and listen to me. We say, what do you think of this? I promise you I'm not going to ask you To give yourself over to a whole novel, unless it's going to rattle at the cage of humans in the world a little bit. And so that's what you can expect of me.
0: Barbara Kingsolver's latest book is entitled Flight Behavior. Thank you so much for taking this time today.
8: Thanks so much. It's great to be here.
0: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Lauren Hinkle, Jake Lucas, Abby Nighthill, Jennifer Marquis, and Olivia Powers all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Liererstein composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and like us on our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth, and we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the
3: Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communication and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. Living on Earth is also supported by Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more www.stoneyfield.com
4: PRI Public Radio International